Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to the 10th episode of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial markets could be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. The influence of social media on financial markets and more broadly on society in general has reached a fever pitch with the President of the United States being banned by Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms for his last week in office. So my guest this week will be former Twitter senior executive Kirsten Stewart, whose career began in broadcast media before she moved on to a senior position at pre-IPO Twitter. These days, she heads up media, sport, and entertainment for the World Economic Forum, producers of the infamous economic conference held each January in Davos, Switzerland. Kirsten has been on the front lines of the question of whether and how social media needs to be governed to prevent abusive use of its influential power for most of her career, and I think you'll find her insights quite fascinating. My interview with Kirsten Stewart is coming up next. And now, with this week's special guest, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Kirsten, thanks so much for joining me on Smarter Markets. I want to start with your background because you've had such an interesting career, starting first at CBC, which is the preeminent broadcast television network in Canada, and then moving on to Twitter. So you've got broadcast media and social media in your background before moving on to uh, World Economic Forum. Tell us about that in terms of your experience. I mean, in, in the beginning of your career, the, the whole responsibility thing was about your company's own employees. It wasn't policing the behavior of the general public. And of course, in social media, it's a different equation. Talk to us about the experience that you had through your career and how your perspective on the way that media influences and affects society has evolved through this experience that you've had. Sure. Thanks, Eric, for having me on. And and I think, you know, you're right. I think where I've been lucky in my career is to have worked at a point in time in which I think, you know, you couldn't work at a more interesting time when it comes to the kind of history of media and its relevancy uh, in the world. And I know that, you know, you can say that the, the advent of television, the advent of radio, there are, there are moments in time which technology has really shifted the way that people interact with information and, and news particularly, but currently with the way things are moving so quickly, you know, there has never been a more interesting time to be, you know, working in this ecosystem of media. My background being at the head of a public broadcaster and being television, radio and digital, you know, that was an interesting time because even in that time, we were transitioning. 
you know, it was at one point, it, you know, as, as most public broadcasters start out, they start out in radio, they add television, they add digital, you know, you add every kind of aspect of new technology to reach your audience, to, to, to be able to distribute information, to, to play a role in that um, media ecosystem. You're always trying to be at the forefront of technology, but you're always playing catch up. And I think the one of the challenges that I saw, even while at a place like the CBC, where we have we had obviously have they they still have I had responsibility over you know quite a large segment of of a newsroom. I was not responsible for editorial. I'm I was you know being the executive. I was responsible for kind of the the support of the newsroom and how you know how we can resource it in a way that again it could be most effective. When the advent of of social media started coming on board when I was at the public broadcaster, suddenly, you know, you'd mentioned we, we were working in an easier linear time where it was one one uh, source speaking to many. Well, you know, social did come along at the time when I was at the CBC. And, you know, even before that, the, at the advent of, of digital uh, publication, you know, publishing of, of news articles and things like that, there were comment sections. So, you know, I think if you remember back in the day, commenting and all of a sudden opening the microphone to everybody, you know, that was a real mark, a point in time at which all all news outlets were suddenly dealing with not just having a one way communication of being able to kind of uh, uh, broadcast and, and send out the information and expecting it to just be, you know, consumed and read and accepted, suddenly there was this feedback method, you know, beyond the, you know, the early days of, of call-in radio shows, you know, this was the biggest, I think, change in, in how broadcasters had to incorporate the fact that audiences had opinions and an opinion of, as to whether facts were facts. And so this was kind of the leading edge of, of what we see now in social media. So it gave me a really interesting perspective on how did we deal with comments where we, you know, people shut down comment rooms, um, people accepted them and, and they spun off and, and sometimes were really great ways of, of kind of augmenting the conversation and really connecting to a community. Other ones were, were you know, verging on the going off track and, and being a bit dangerous. So I think, you know, the transition from being traditional media into social media was a natural kind of evolution. And the social media being able to, you know, give a microphone to everybody and be, as they call themselves, the town square was a yet another shift, but a hugely dramatic one that we're now dealing with the implications of right now. Tell us about your experience when you moved from CBC to Twitter. And now it's a completely different game. As you say, it's no longer the one to many, but it's kind of deciding what the rules should be for many to many when really it's a new game. And, and, you know, whether or not there even are rules is a question that nobody's really sure what the right answer is. Well, I think being there in the early days, because I joined Twitter pre-IPO. So it was uh, quite some time ago. And, you know, this was in the heady days. And I was excited to join, you know, Twitter, I think, as most people were excited about this new frontier, this opportunity, you know, the, the, the kind of promise, the optimistic promise of sharing the microphone meant that more people, more voices, more diversity would have access to telling stories and telling their narrative and and information would you know have a have a great flow to it. I think you know there was a certain level of naivety, obviously, and people like myself coming from more traditional media backgrounds, I think, did 
you know, come to it with a level of skepticism around how easy that was going to be to unfold, but also were optimistic about the fact that at least the tools existed to do so, or they hadn't existed in the past. So here is this opportunity. How are we going to make best use of this opportunity? I think the challenge at the time and the challenge that was ongoing, I think, for quite some time, and that's why we got ourselves into the situation I think we see now, is that there was um, a lack of understanding of the capacity of bad actors or things to go wrong in that optimistic kind of utopia. You know, I think, you know, you, you heard Twitter and other platforms talk about being the place, you know, as I said, being the town square. Arab Spring was often held up as an example of what happens when you can get tools for communication into the hands of the individuals and, and you know, great things can happen in terms of democracy the flip side of that, obviously, has been the challenges that we're seeing today, right up to you know a week or so ago with the with the insurrection on Capitol Hill. And I think there was a, I like to believe that it's it was a mix of optimism, naivete, with a little bit of ego, because you know here you are a newcomer into into the world of media and influence as a technology company and having such presence and impact. So ego gets involved in that. And, you know, there was a commerce aspect that rolled into it where there were benefits to being able to capitalize on your audience. And that meant you were doing, you were having a different relationship with them than you would do if you were a traditional broadcaster. Kirsten, let's go into a little more detail on what happened a few weeks ago when that event occurred on Capitol Hill. The result was that Twitter led the uh, decision that was then followed by several other social media platforms to ban the president of the United States from their platform, which has become one of the most effective and commonly used communication platforms in existence today. Now, if you were still with Twitter, you were in a senior enough position that you probably would have been in that room participating in making that decision. But now that you've left Twitter and have the objectivity of looking into the organization from the outside, should executives at a private company like Twitter with no elected officials, no, no influence uh, of anyone democratically elected, should they be in charge of deciding whether or not the president of the United States should be banned from their platform? Or is that something that should have occurred in, in some governmental body? That's a really interesting question, and I think it's one that we're going to have a debate on for quite some time. And I think we're going to see a bit of a power struggle going back and forth. I think, you know, the one thing to remember is that these are private companies, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, you know, the, these platforms are private companies who should have the jurisdiction to decide what does and doesn't happen on their platforms. And you've seen you know, TikTok, others who come from whose headquarters are in countries that are in other places outside of the US, they reflect the values of the countries in which they represent. And so, you know, the initial kind of conception of the ideas of these platforms being based in the US is very strongly based on free speech. And so I think that's where you see a lot of these struggles today as they try to police what does free speech mean and what is free speech in the context of hate speech and and other kind of challenges that we're seeing now with how people are using the platform in a way that I don't think anyone ever, no one definitely intended it to be um, used in the way that it's being used, whether they could have seen it and, and done things to have 
made sure that we didn't have the scale of problems that we have today is another question. But yes, I would have been in those rooms. I was responsible for, I was on the, I was the vice president of uh, media for Twitter and that encompassed working together with entertainment, with sports, but with also news and government. And a big part of what we did as a service, I believe, was to be able to onboard, you know, diverse voices and make sure that we had the breadth of of conversation that would make sure that every everyone who should have access have access to the platform as a as a voice. Now the question is to what are the limits that people can put on that voice? I think that's what they're grappling with today. And even though these decisions have been made in the last, you know, in the recent weeks and more uh, specific to events that are happening in the U.S. right now, obviously these companies are global in nature. So there's a question of when they make these decisions is what's you know good for one country good for another how do they scale up these decisions is are the actions that all these platforms have decided where trump particularly has violated terms of service who else has violated terms of service in terms of other leadership globally and you know i think we've seen some activity just recently where twitter has taken down and temporarily banned others including the uh, embassy of china into the us for some of the um, tweets that they've been posting if you remember when the decisions were being made around whether trump's voice could be heard on various platforms there was a bit of jockeying and positioning for who was going to make the decision first and who was going to make the strongest who was going to have the strongest position I think it was Twitter who led with a 24-hour ban or 12-hour ban. And again, the, you know, these things were coming in fast and furious, so I may have them out of order. But there were various escalations of the decision. And they almost, as an outsider, looking at the various platforms seemed to be a bit of, you know, you wonder if it was one-upmanship or positioning and kind of waiting for the other to decide because there is no precedent for these moments, particularly in a time of crisis where people were acting and management was acting in a bit of a vacuum and trying to respond to things that were happening in real time. You know, here, you know, here's the great irony. These are platforms that depend on their ability and, and the kind of the way that these platforms integrate in everybody's personal and professional lives on a real-time basis, and yet they are not always capable of making real-time decisions on what's happening on their platform, this was a really hard moment for them. And going against kind of tenants that they had put in place around free speech for a, for a number of years and the, the, what they were rooted in. So I think it's it was interesting to see where they netted out and to see what will happen next? Um, because you now have, as I said, how do you scale this globally? You have challenges around other countries. You have challenges around other aspects that aren't just you know, government-led. You have you know people making statements. We you know, we um, at the forum are working together with partners, looking at disinformation, looking at harmful content in the digital space. You know these these are all huge challenges and. We've now, you know, put a, a flag, planted a flag. I think the 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 various platforms as to what where their jurisdiction is on making these decisions. Even just recently, uh, Facebook came out with a ruling that said, you know, here we had made a decision on Trump. We we believe that as a company, that's not our decision as management to make a loan. So we we had passed it on to our oversight committee. And if you recall, the oversight committee was something that Facebook pulled together in the last year to be this arm's length body that was going to help regulate, self-regulate in a way because they were appointed by Facebook and yet arm's length and give rulings on, on content on the platform. 
they passed the ruling on to the oversight committee who came back and and also kind of seconded the motion and said yes we agree with the with the banning of trump so you know people have platforms set up their own governing bodies platforms look to regulators I think a lot of the challenge right now in the conversations that we have globally at the forum with regulators and policymakers is the internet is not contained within borders. So anything that's done in terms of policymaking and regulation has to take a global perspective. Not easy to come to a global consensus, even on the policymaker side of, of, of how far or how deeply they should be regulating any of these platforms. And then the bigger question of antitrust and some of the other you know, concerns that have come into big tech, you know, kind of complicate these matters. And and it's, you know, how do you unravel it? And at what level do you start to interfere with the flow of, of platforms and the flow of this, you know, this marketplace? So it's it's a really interesting quandary. And I think, although it's now at everyone's attention, because these decisions are being made quite publicly you could argue that these decisions have been made, you know, in either boardrooms or the hands of developers who first set up these platforms and set up algorithms, which preference certain kinds of content over others. Decisions have been made, whether they've been overtly obvious or not, since the beginning of the of the platform's you know, launches. So, you know, yes, they're more public now. Yes, management has had to stand up and speak on behalf of what they believe the values of their platform represent and why somebody is or isn't on side with that and why they need to 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 remove that voice from the platform. But these decisions have in fact been made quite some time ago at the desks of developers who were inventing their algorithms to to actually you know create the content distribution models that people experience when they're on the platform. I definitely want to come back to those algorithms that promote or demote content and and govern what gets the most visibility. But let's move on from just the event with President Trump and talk more broadly about the narratives that really drive a lot of what happens in society. Now, one of the biggest advantages of social media, or at least what was touted as one of the big advantages in the early days, is people thought, well, the broadcast networks are susceptible to the political leanings of their management and ownership. So that the the allegation was Rupert Murdoch, whatever his, you know, he has so much control over the media that whatever he wants the news to be is kind of what the news could have become if his influence was unduly uh, allowed to influence the content of the news, which was the allegation. And people said, well, social media is going to cure all of this because you've got all these independent voices that have an equal platform to speak. But what we've seen is, if anything, it's just an opportunity for more people to figure out more clever ways of gaming the system, because we definitely have lots of people that are trying to influence major narratives that affect everything from the outcome of of, uh, political elections to just attitudes in society around free speech, around racism, uh, around so many different things. And there have been plenty of examples where it's been uncovered that trends, the things that were trending on social media, actually somebody had invested a lot of money in having robots, you know, like thousands and thousands of tweets or thousands of posts on Facebook in order to create an appearance 
that they're trending in the sense of public acceptance or, or public endorsement of certain ideas, when in reality, somebody was gaming the system. You've seen a lot of this, and I'm sure that you must have been privy to a lot of what was going on inside Twitter while you were there. Is this something that they kind of scratch their head and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it? Or do they actively try to manage that? And should they be trying to manage that? I think there's a lot more emphasis being placed on the management of, you know, what you call, and I think you rightly phrased it, gaming the system. The challenge the platforms brought on to each other and themselves and the world is that by creating an open market, you know, by saying, you know, here we are creating a town square, everyone should have access to the to the microphone, then you have more access points at which you can you can influence uh, the microphones. And I think that's, you know, that has been the biggest challenge. It's, it's still based on the same elements of human nature that we've seen since the beginning of time, though. Like, if you think back at, you know, Citizen Kane, like you, you rightly point out, you know, ownership has always been a challenge. It is a, is a particular viewpoint of a news organization influenced by ownership. Even public broadcasters, when myself and I was at the CBC, you know, the question is, were we a public broadcaster or were we a state broadcaster and a voice for the government of the time, which of course was not the case, but that's, you know, was always the charge that could be levied at someone who's, you know, lights and, and salaries are paid for by, you know, a government appropriation. So you, no one is uh, immune to the questioning of the purpose of their mandate as a, as a news organization. And some are more vulnerable to criticism because of the way they position themselves. And then you find, you know, today with such a prevalence and confirmation bias and this need for audiences to you know, find thoughts and viewpoints that reinforce their own thoughts and viewpoints. And, and again, as it ever was, but now there's more opportunity to do so because platforms are giving you the opportunities to select your feed, to select your, you know, the, the voices that you hear from. Because again, you know, the, this idea of open mic is fantastic, but you are still as a individual following accounts and and yes you're pushed accounts but you're also following accounts so i think you know it's created this you know massive exponential growth in opportunity for access to content without a lot of help in the curation or the sifting of what is good and bad and now we find ourselves in this really strange kind of post-factual world <laughs> where where nothing is fact and nothing is information so i think news organizations generally struggle with the what is their role today when they're presenting news and information right now media is at its lowest in terms of trust factor you know there's been a number of of surveys and reports being done which shows media at its lowest lowest ranking in terms of trust with audiences. And that's a terrible position to be in because we rely on news and media for very important, you know, day-to-day life-saving information, whether it's, you know, through national emergencies, whether it's through the pandemic that we're going through right now globally, you know, this is, we need to have a trust in our media and, and our, and our news voices, but the, the platforms have kind of, you don't want to say messed it up, but they've, you know, by expanding it so exponentially, and then by, you know, allowing technologies that, that can allow bad actors to get in there and juice the system, as you say, you know, that's, that's been another complicating factor. So at the time when I was at Twitter, there was evidence that, you know, here we are, we are, we've passed the microphone to more people, we have to watch out for 
you know, people who are trying to influence beyond their, their, their scope and if they're factual or not. But, you know, that was, that was addressed by things like verification of accounts. And, you know, it was, it was very simplistic at the beginning. It's how do you, how do you make sure you have verified voices and make sure that they're representing even who they truly are? Someone could put up a picture of, of you or I, Eric, and say that you were, say that they were you or I and, and start speaking words that we would never say. And so even that had to be addressed at the very, very beginning. So verification was an important first step, but there's so many steps to take. And I don't think, you know, at the time, you know, we understood that there were, you know, anonymous accounts signing up en masse, you know, that there were bots starting to develop. And platforms have done a very good job, I think, at trying to make sure that they de-platform the, the, the bots wherever they can, wherever they find them. And they're, they're quite transparent with the reports that they make around what they, who they have found or the numbers that they have found and the numbers that they've de-platformed. But it's, a, it's like playing whack-a-mole. Like you're constantly out there, you know, for every, you know, new bot farm that starts up in one location and you shut it down, another two or three can start up somewhere else. So that's a constant struggle on the behalf of the technology of platforms that they've, you know, again, brought onto themselves by creating an open mic situation. Guess what? People are going to seize the mic and try to try to use it for their own purpose. But it's a it's it's a ongoing challenge of the basics of the way human nature has always kind of reacted to news. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, people are you know fascinated by the car crash on the side of the road. It's you know there are there have always been ways to influence overtly or or not the way that people see facts and the way that people you know trust in the information that they're seeing and propaganda has been around since since the beginning of storytelling so that's the challenge that social media has brought on is just how how to deal with the exponential growth of it and who can deal with that growth and at what level I want to come back to those algorithms you mentioned a few minutes ago, because when we look at a situation like Twitter's decision to ban the president of the United States from their social media platform, I'm sure some of our listeners feel like uh, Twitter did exactly the right thing and that action was overdue. And we have other listeners who feel very strongly that it was not their place to, to make that decision. But at least it's transparent. Everybody knows exactly what happened. We saw the way it happened. Some people agree. Some people disagree. There's plenty of transparency there. When it comes to these algorithms, it's not transparent at all. If I have an opinion about whether or not the president of the United States should have been banned by private sector executives at Twitter, and I express that in social media, it's not equal like my view and everybody else's view are all exactly the same weight and they have the same chance of being seen. These algorithms in social media platforms decide which posts or tweets need to be promoted so that more people see them. And in some cases, it's known that they demote them, that they actively create situations where people think they're tweeting out to their whole audience, but in actuality, they've been shadow banned and nobody can see their tweets. And the person who's doing the tweeting doesn't even know that they've been muffled effectively. I think that that issue is maybe even stronger in the case of Google and search results, because the search results, if, if you and I do the same Google search exactly you won't get the same results as I will. And the sales pitch side of that is, well, they're tailoring based on what they know about you and your geography and where you live and, and uh, everything else. They're going to give you the results that are going to be most of interest 
to you. The, the skeptic view would be, no, actually what they're doing is they're exploiting what they know about you in order to sell you things, in order to try to influence you and get your behavior to change based on the way the people writing these algorithms want you to behave. Now, the problem is, Kirsten, nobody really knows because these algorithms, unlike a decision that was made very publicly to ban the president, these algorithms are trade secret. We can't see that source code. It's, it's, it's not shared with the world. Nobody knows exactly how Google sorts its search results other than Google. And there are people inside of Twitter that are writing software that decides whether my tweet is more important than your tweet. If we're in a political discussion where my opinion and your opinion might influence the outcome of an election, there's some programmer at Twitter someplace who might have more influence than either you or I do. Should it be that way? And do we need some kind of increased transparency to at least tell us what's going on? I think what you're pointing out is a really good example of, and people often point to the challenge of media and the lack of trust in media in that there's not a lot of of lifting you know, the veil on how news becomes news and what goes into, you know, fact checking, what goes into verification. And I think, you know, similarly, we talk about media literacy all the time, and the need to educate the public on what goes into creating content, and how you can be a good content consumer. I think similarly, there is a need to understand the basics of how algorithms work, and how they're affecting what you see or don't see, you know, in your various interactions with the internet. And, Again, not being a developer myself, not being somebody, you know, who, who beyond, you know, working alongside developers and programmers from the inside, it's clear that the intents and purposes of the algorithms are actually intended on a couple of levels. One, to make it easier for the user to use a platform or to use a search engine or to, you know, to, to use the internet. And secondly, yes, there is a commercial endeavor here because, you know, this is a business. And if we're making it easier for users, therefore, that should be better for business. And if you want to believe that algorithms are really the intention of, of elevating choices that humans make anyway, that's really, I believe, the intention of when these algorithms get initially formed is, to your point earlier, it's to make your life as a user easier to tailor something to you. And if in the, in the benefit of doing that, I, as a commercial endeavor, have the opportunity to connect you with the things that you will use and consume the most. That's that's to everyone's mutual benefit. Like, really, I think that's there is a lot of, I think, suspicion around somebody with a political or other motivation in changing algorithms and changing what I can see and shadow banning. You know, these are all things that people kind of hold out as these as these opportunities for for things to go wrong in the sense of, you know, building this, this uh, opportunity to connect you with the information you need, need and want to see and hear most regularly in creating this kind of bespoke uh, environment for you. There, there is this concern that somebody in the background could be manipulating it in a way that's influencing you. And I think we don't know much. We don't know enough and don't think enough. And again, this goes back to the beginning of platforms. There was not enough thought about the unintended consequences of the actions that they make. Because I think when they're made in this world, again, of naivete or you know, naivete ma- mashed a bit with ego, 
they're not thinking of the unintended consequences. I'll give you an example. I was at an event a few couple of years ago, and someone was very excited to tell me that they had come up with a a service that would be able to, on behalf of, if if you were a a content creator and you wanted to find video of anybody anywhere saying, talking about a particular subject, you'd be able to type in that subject. And this, this would be able to scrape the internet and find anybody talking about that particular subject and send you the video. So that if you are creating, if you're a content creator, documentary producer, something like that, you might want to be able to, to hear or to see video on anybody talking about a particular subject. This, this, program would be able to to kind of scan the world, scan scan all the video and be able to to pull the most relevant for you and and give you that information. And that sounds like a hugely important tool. If you're an individual, you you know you want to be able to bring voices again of the world in and and get access to anybody speaking about a particular topic. Fantastic. So I've said great. What do you do when it's you know a government who's trying to get after a dissident and they 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 type in the subject that uh, that they know they're talking about and that's how they're trying to find them? Have you thought about how bad actors might use this in order to to do bad? And uh, and he he just looked at me like he'd never thought of that. And so I think you know there's the the kind of skeptor of unintended consequences is something we don't think enough about, and I think they're just coming into focus now because now we're seeing the impact of those unintended consequences and it's not good enough I think right now for the platforms to say we didn't mean to they now have a lot of making up to do and and I think there's a lot of will there to make up you know what they have done to get you know lead us to the situation that we are in right now but you know I think people also have to come up on the other side and and be ready to work together and collaborate um, with platforms in order to understand that human nature plays a role in this too and people gaming systems play a role in this too and if we can figure out you know the, the role that we're trying to play in bringing together people who are on all sides of this issue is trying to find what is what is the way through that can benefit people because I don't think people expected us to be where we are today it it happened partially by accident. It happened a lot by design, but the design was never intended, I don't think, to be nefarious. I think it was in absence of understanding what the unintended consequences could be. And now that we see them, we have to fix them. Kirsten, let's move on now beyond Twitter. You obviously had a very senior position at one of the biggest and, and most exciting, rapidly growing companies. What made you leave that position in order to go to World Economic Forum? And tell us about what your role is there. Sure. So, yeah, I, you know, after leaving Twitter, I had uh, moved to a couple of startup companies. And, you know, I'd, I'd learned, you know, again, you know, the conversation we're having here today is a great reminder of the influence of technology, you know, in our world. And there's no such thing as a tech company anymore. Everybody's in the business of technology. Technology is everywhere. And so I thought, you know, given my career had always sat at the intersection of media and technology, moving more squarely to technology companies and sitting with developers and and those that are really kind of behind the mechanics of technology would would uh, give me a, a perspective I hadn't seen before. So working with startups was a really interesting place to be. But there was always something in me that was missing. You know, I, I had left media because I was worried that it was broken and couldn't be fixed. 
And, uh, you know, I saw opportunity in, in Twitter and that, again, there was a new way of approaching and bringing new voices into the media ecosystem and, and making sure that, that we had, you know, different ways of telling stories and passing information, wanting to get further into technology. Um, it was interesting working with these startups, but when the uh, World Economic Forum when I started having conversations with them, they were looking for someone to head up the uh, partnership sector that works with media and technology companies that are part of their membership. And so being that their membership represents a lot of different companies from platforms to publishers to creators, this was, a, I thought, a real opportunity to kind of get back into the media space and maybe help you know, to address some of these issues that when media, I saw it as a broken ecosystem, because at the time working for a, a traditional media outlet, it had been so disrupted and so incapable, it felt of modernizing and being what being relevant to what uh, audiences needed today, then seeing, you know, flipping the switch and going to a, a technology media company and Twitter and seeing that actually, a lot of the issues aren't fixed by the by by the advent of, of platforms. In fact, they're just in some cases exacerbated by them. This was an opportunity to go. Okay, everybody, we're sitting at one table together here at a at the intersection of public and private cooperation. How do we figure this out for the better of information, for the better of content, and for the better of the public? And uh, so that's that's where I'm, I'm lucky right now to sit at this at those tables and have those conversations and see where we can be helpful. Now, Kirsten, I'm sure there are going to be at least a few people in our audience who are crying foul on hypocrisy now because we're having a conversation about a role that you have to kind of think about how the world should be in, in terms of not letting people have undue or unreasonable influence through social media over important narratives that shape society. Yet the World Economic Forum, your new employer, has a reputation, at least a perceived reputation with some people that, hey, this is where the billionaire captains of industry fly in on their private jets so that they can get together and decide the future of the world that ought to be decided democratically by governments. But these captains of industries who are billionaires and can afford to show up by private jet at one of the most exclusive ski resorts in the world to have their little shindig every year are basically in, in the, the latest one, the, the so-called Great Reset, is an example of a narrative that's being pushed by the World Economic Forum and its members. This is not about, you know, it's not a, a conference to get together and talk about the economy and, you know, what stocks to invest in. These are the most powerful overlords of, of corporate industry deciding how the world should work for the rest of us and perhaps using social media in order to effectuate their, their desires. What would you say to people who think that's what your employer is all about? It's interesting because um, I sometimes hear the opposite. I sometimes hear with the discussion about the Great Reset and Build Back Better that there's somehow an infiltration of, of, of socialism uh, that somehow um, is, is affecting uh, these conversations. So it's, it's really interesting. Like I think, you know, even from my time with the CBC where, again, institutions and organizations that 
are you know are large and have influence can be susceptible to people with with viewpoints that are completely divergent. When I was at the CBC, you know, there was you know, we were um, at what at one point standing on one side of a political question and at the other at the same time, and yet all I was thinking was, "Gosh, we're just trying to get the news out." It's you know, it's it's fascinating sometimes to see the the dichotomy of of viewpoints depending again on what your what your bias is coming towards it, and I think. I think what's interesting today is that, you know, leadership, and it might have been true in some case in the past, I've not been, you know, I haven't been a leader for long myself. When I was in in leadership, I think I, I was representing something different and a new kind of leadership. And I think the benefits of today is that we're seeing, you know, a generational shift in leaders and the way that they're approaching their worldview is very related to an understanding, I believe, of what the impact of, of corporate decisions are on the world. And so when you when you think about the new forms of leadership and the people who are sitting around those tables, when I hear the discussions, they, there is a there is a deep concern and an understanding and a and a, a responsibility, I believe, that this leadership is taking on to understand that the role they play is much larger than their bottom line and that there is a long lasting impact on society in the decisions that are made at the corporate level. And so you see things like the business council, you know, coming forward with certain positions on how we should be addressing a post pandemic world and the kinds of things that we should be prioritizing are not necessarily, you know, those that would have been prioritized 10 years ago, maybe even just five years ago. So I think there has been a shift and I think, you know, there's been a reprioritization of the way uh, corporate can behave in the world. And I think the new leadership that, that comes to sit around those tables is representing that. And so the conversations are geared towards making the world a better place, but understanding that you have a certain role and an obligation to, to step up to do that as an individual, as a leader and as someone representing a company. Let's come back to the uh, social media and the things that, that are going on in social media. One of the things that's coming up very shortly here is, uh, and it's already been announced a few weeks ago, is that Facebook is changing the terms of service for its WhatsApp instant messaging application so that essentially they're going to be using all of your personal data, it will no longer be possible to opt out of it. And they're going to use it, as I understand it, all of the other aspects of Facebook will be capitalizing it. I don't think they're actually selling that personal data to third parties, but they're going to be using it in a way that you're no longer allowed to to opt out of. And the way this seems to me, Kirsten, is, you know, they didn't do this in the beginning when people might have responded by saying, hey, the heck with you. We're, we're going to take my my messaging uh, or my, my instant messaging business elsewhere. They waited until WhatsApp gained this, this network effect where everybody's on WhatsApp. And similar to Twitter, as much as you might get frustrated with some of Twitter's policies and want to go to a different platform that does the same thing with different policies. You can't because everybody's on Twitter. Everybody's on WhatsApp. Now they've got everybody on WhatsApp and they're suddenly being so much more aggressive saying, we know you want to opt out of this. We're not going to let you because we're in charge now. How should we think about the power that these social media companies are gaining because Facebook, I think is playing a very calculated 
game of cards here. They know that the network effect they've established with WhatsApp allows them to get away with doing pretty much whatever they want. And they don't care if people are upset because people are not going to abandon WhatsApp and use Signal or use Telegram because everybody else is still on WhatsApp. Should this be regulated or is this just a matter of, uh, of customers need to speak with their feet more, more voraciously or what? I think it's probably a combination of all those. And I think, you know, what we're seeing right now, and I believe in that particular case, and I might be wrong, but I think I had seen that Facebook actually pulled back from that position because of all the public attention to it. And so I think that shows you the the power of people, you know, kind of speaking with their feet, so to speak, around, you know, they're saying that uh, if this is happening, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. But it does kind of go back to the larger question, you know, that we talked about before around kind of literacy around these things. And I think as an individual, it's, it's very easy to, to be swayed by headlines and get very upset about the way that a particular company is behaving, you know, and, and, and this is a prime example. People got very upset with Facebook over the, over WhatsApp and, and like you just very well put now that the summary is, well, they're taking advantage of a situation because they know we need it. But the question is, is it's a private company. So shouldn't they be allowed to make the right commercial decision at the right time? That all being said, I think if an individual, again, when it comes back to literacy and understanding where their digital footprint lies and how vast their digital footprint is. I did see somebody publish around the time when this conversation about Facebook and, and WhatsApp was at its height post, you know, where, where other platforms are sharing information between each other. And it was a lot more extensive in some of the other relationships and that, that are not known and we're not being discussed and we're not making the headlines. So again, I think it comes back to the individual understanding your own digital exposure I just, you know, I've just bought a toothbrush. Um, this sounds quite pedantic, but my toothbrush is attached to an app. The app is telling me how long to brush my teeth for, and it's asked me a whole bunch of other personal information and asked me to okay the terms and services. Did I read that terms and service, services agreement? I have to admit, even though I'm in the world that I'm in, I didn't. And I had to make a decision quickly before I got to my nightly brushing as to whether I was going to say yes to that app, getting my information or not. So these kind of decisions individuals are making all the time. And I think we're not, you know, it, there were generationally, I think there's also um, a shift to how people view their privacy and the value of their digital information. We hear there's a number of initiatives right now to kind of claw back digital footprints and make your digital data your own so that as an individual, you can decide uh, almost like a passport style where it goes, does it get commoditized? If there's money to be made on it, maybe you should be making money on it and not, not others, not platforms, not apps. So there's a lot of discussion going on right now. And I think it's going to very much feed into these bigger tech discussions around around antitrust and how large some of these companies have gotten and what they own as data and what they own as, you know, private versus versus public. I thought it was interesting, you know, the, all of this conversation about vaccine distribution and some of the failures and the recent change in administration. I saw that uh, Amazon, I think, has made a pitch that, you know, Amazon's pretty good with delivery. Maybe it should be helping with uh, vaccines. And I think even Bezos or someone from Amazon has posted something to say, hey, we can help in distribution. 
well, you can only imagine, you know, you've got the, the access to very private data, you know, is, is this going to raise red flags for people? It sure did immediately. And meanwhile, they were maybe they were just trying to do something good in the world because they are really good at distribution and maybe they could be helping with vaccine distribution. But wow, that's walking a, a really fine line there. That's going to make a lot of people nervous about what access to what information people have. So, you know, these are all challenges, I think, that we're grappling with as our world expands and technology you know, creates these really complex paradoxes around what what is individual right and what is what is to the benefit of the individual and how do companies work on the benefit? You know, to, to your point around the uh, around the, the people who are members of the World Economic Forum, how are those corporations behaving in a world where their obligations are are expanding as quickly as their as their reach? And I think that you know, when it comes to questions around folks like Facebook and, and sharing with other apps, if you were to take a look and a snapshot at where your digital footprint is right now, I think you'd be really surprised. Let's talk about the influence of social media on financial markets specifically, because in that particular example, when people were frustrated with Facebook's decision around WhatsApp and personal data, Elon Musk tweeted, use Signal. And of course, what he was referring to was use a less well-known alternative to WhatsApp called Signal, an an app that's available. Uh, That resulted in a bunch of people thinking, well, if, if this Signal, whatever it is, is endorsed by Elon Musk, it must be good. The stock of a company that had Signal in its name that had absolutely nothing to do with instant messaging or the Signal app or any of that saw something like a 7,000% or more, a 70,000% price spike in a matter of seconds because everybody was influenced by, in that case, a completely innocent mistake of making an assumption that Elon Musk was endorsing a company that doesn't even exist. That's the the version of this which is entirely innocent and is just a mistake. But we both know, Kirsten, that there are people on Twitter whose whole reason for being there is to pump stocks or to try to destroy stocks. What is the degree, do you think, of the influence that social media is having over gaming and uh, and influencing financial markets? And what, if anything, should be done about it? I think there's some steps that have been taken. And when you think about the, the way that certain folks have been censored on uh, Twitter, I, again, you used Elon Musk as an example. And I go back to a decision that was made around his tweeting and warnings that he's gotten from you know the various authorities on what he says and doesn't say on Twitter that can influence because I think at one point there was a question around how he was influencing his own stock with information that he was you know not necessarily as you said intending to to have influence and yet it does because people are going to read into things um, as they as they want that kind of censor or warning I think it's kind of just bringing to the forefront the challenge of. The fact that you're speaking on an open platform and, you know, how do you regulate that? And it's very hard. It's very hard for regulators to to go down a chain. It's it's fine to be able to you know, make examples of a couple of uh, voices that have large followers and, and are large personalities with influence. But of course, you, you dig deeper and there's a lot of activity that happens at lower levels that could be equally disturbing and and can throw off markets. So I think it's something that I think the 
the various markets are trying to address. I think there's a bigger question around influence overall and in a world where, you know, just like I said, every company is a technology company. That was true, you know, been true for the last 10 years or so. Well, now every company is a content company. And again, verifying whether something is an independent source of information and whether it's being influenced by a sponsor or by somebody who's creating the, the content or somehow supporting the, the creation of that content through revenue. Again, going back to our early part of the conversation that talked about, you know, what is the how neutral are news sources that have ownership? that have a particular political bias. You know, this is this is true, you know, of all forms of communication. And now that everybody's a content company, so much harder to regulate. Even I think Andres and, and uh, Horowitz has, has announced that they're starting up a, a media company themselves. So, you know, it's it's everyone is kind of getting, a lot of people are getting into this space. And the question is, you know, when everyone has the microphone, who has the dial on who gets turned up and who gets turned down is going to be a challenging one. Finally, Kirsten, I want to ask you about a topic that's very much near and dear to my heart and to this audience as well, which is the design of financial markets themselves, and particularly the adoption of tokenization technology, what some people call blockchain technology. When I first started working with Abex to produce this new podcast, I thought that the challenge was going to be most people wouldn't get it. The market wouldn't be ready for it. It was still a long ways off. And I've been shocked just from some of the guests that I've talked to in different industries who are waiting for this. Now, in your position at the World Economic Forum, you're you're seeing what's being discussed by some of the most influential people in markets. And I'm not talking now about you know, the bond market in the sense of our, our, our bond yields going up or down. But I'm talking about the bond market in the sense of how the bond market itself works and how we trade bonds and whether or not we're eventually going to tokenize those bonds on a blockchain or another distributed ledger. Is the, the Davos crowd starting to think about that stuff and talk about it yet? Are you hearing about that or are we still not quite there? There's a, there's a center of uh, blockchain technology um, and a group of people at the forum that are colleagues of mine who work and focus on that. If, if you're interested, uh, they have you know, positioned a number of papers and, and some studies on you know, what the future of blockchain looks like, particularly you know, when it comes to uh, world markets. So it might be an opportunity for your audience to check out some of the work that they've been doing. It's not an area of my expertise, but it, it is something that the forum has as a center of, of uh, innovation in terms of uh, blockchain technology. So you can, you can check that out. Well, I may be hitting you up for a, uh, an introduction to some of your colleagues and perhaps we'll get them on for a future interview. Sure. Kirsten, I can't thank you enough for a terrific interview, but before I let you go, I want to give our audience an update. The Davos World Economic Forum, uh, of course, as I said earlier, has a reputation of sort of being the big event of the year that the captains of, of industry fly into on their private jets. This year, nobody's flying anywhere. Uh, so the Davos conference did occur just this past week. Tell us about how that happened. It was a virtual conference, uh, both what happened this year and what's anticipated and planned going forward, of course, in this uh, new pandemic world that we live in. Sure. So, yeah, it was uh, we were lucky in uh, 2020 to have been able to have one of the last biggest uh, global conferences uh, in January. And January is the time of year in which we you know, convene you know, heads of, of business, uh, heads of state, 
academia, uh, public policymakers together again to to look at uh, what the what the future is. And you know, here we are at the top of 2021, not able to convene in person. But we did get together virtually and have something called the Davos Agenda Week, which we are looking to set the agenda for the upcoming Davos meeting that is planned currently, if all things um, keep continuing in the, in the improvement. And, and if, if people still believe that it's uh, publicly safe to do so, there is a plan to meet in Singapore at the end, in the end of May. But the Davos Agenda Week uh, that we just had were an opportunity to get together uh, the people who would normally convene in Davos and and think about what those conversations will be like um, at the end of May and really uh, surface a conversation around trust. You know, here we had a conversation, our, you know, our, our last hour has been spent talking about, you know, the role of platforms, the role of media right now, and the kind of challenge that the world is having right now in trust. And it's not just media to the public, it's in business to business. So the conversations around how do we rebuild trust in a time when it has been so challenged through the pandemic, it was a great opportunity to speak together this past week and then look forward to what kind of conversations we can have in person later on this year at our annual general meeting that should happen at the end of May in Singapore. Okay, so the virtual meeting was just this past week online, and the normal Davos in-person live conference is postponed until the end of May in Singapore. For our listeners who want to follow your work, I think there's a section at uh, weforum.org, the World Economic Forum website, that is specific to the work that you're doing on shaping the future of media, entertainment, and culture. How can people follow your work if they want to do so? Sure. And uh, thanks for pointing that out. Yes, we have um, obviously a really robust website uh, with a lot of content on there. So if you're interested in following along the conversation and and we're consistently, even um, just these past few weeks, we've, been, we've uh, posted blogs on the future of sport because sport has now been a part of our mandate. So we're actually, we look at the future of media, entertainment, and sport now is the, is our what we consider our platform within a platform. And uh, there you can find all kinds of information around, you know, how we're looking at the value of media moving forward, how platforms play a role. There's a, there's a lot of information under that uh, in the in the main website under WEF. Uh, if you look for the platform of media, entertainment, and sport, you'll find a lot of resources there. And uh, we also have a huge um, strategic intelligence um, section too, which will help people kind of think about how a lot of these platforms interweave with each other, because nothing is ever cleanly defined as, as one platform or another. We live a lot of the intersection of platforms, uh, particularly in today's world. So even just having a look around the website altogether at weft.com gives you a good insight as to what the world is, is focusing on. Kirsten, thanks again for a terrific interview. My guest next week will be Dr. Ben Hunt, a former hedge fund manager who now heads up EpsilonTheory.com, where he's written extensively about narrative management in society and financial markets, including how social media plays an incredibly powerful role in developing these narratives. We'll pick up where Kirsten and I left off in this week's episode by talking more about social media and its influence. Then we'll move on to discuss the conundrum of opportunity to radically advance the sophistication and utility of financial markets in the face of incentive systems that offer the smartest market participants strong incentives not to improve the shortcomings of current market design because they can make more money exploiting those shortcomings than fixing them. 
That's coming up next week on Smarter Markets. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests of the caliber that we bring you here on Smarter Markets. And we have a veritable who's who of industry legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via word of mouth. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. See you again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.